Welcome to Explain to Shane. I'm your host, Shane Tews at the American Enterprise Institute. On this podcast, I interview tech industry experts to explain how the apps, services, and structures of today's information technology system work and how they shape our social and economic life. My guests today have both had important roles in the creation and the continuation of the Internet Governance Forum, known as the IGF. The IGF was founded out of a United Nations resolution in 2001 that recognized the Internet's need for guidance and multiple parties to ensure that it stays free and unfettered as a medium of communications and commerce. These events have been going on for 20 years, and they now have regional partners who hold IGF in their regions, as we do at IGF USA, to discuss current issues that are going strong. My first guest is Ambassador David Gross. He is widely recognized as one of the world's foremost experts on international telecommunications and internet policy, having addressed the United Nations General Assembly and led more U.S. delegations to major international telecommunications conferences than anyone else in modern history. David draws on more than 30 years of experience as a lawyer, global policymaker, and corporate executive to assist U.S. companies seeking to enter and expand their international business. David is the co-chair of the Telecom Media and Technology Practice at Wiley. My other guest today is Dustin Loop, who is the executive director of the Greater Washington, D.C. chapter of the Internet Society, also known as ISOC DC. He also serves as the co-chair of the Internet Governance Forum USA, which we'll be discussing today, and he's the chair of the U.S. TLD Stakeholder Council for .US. He's also vice president and treasurer of Diplo US, which is a collaborative body between the Europeans and the United States on internet policy issues. He previously served as the executive director of the ICANN Wiki and continues to contribute to the organization as a board member. Ambassador Gross, what was the catalyst to create the Internet Governance Forum? Well, first and foremost, please call me David. Everyone else does, so I appreciate it. You know, I only use the ambassador title if I'm trying to get a dinner reservation at a fancy restaurant, then it sometimes helps. But nevertheless, David works fine for everything else. I will take that on myself. (laughs) Very good. Well, the catalyst really goes back a fair number of years. Back in 19, I'm not going to do too much ancient history. Back in 1998 at the ITU's Plenipotentiary Conference, which is a treaty writing conference of the UN specialized agencies for ICT related matters, which is what the ITU has become, there was a discussion and a decision made to a request of the United Nations that there be a heads of state summit, which is as big a thing as you can get in the UN world, that would focus on the use of new technologies like the internet for development and related issues. The UN decided to go ahead with that and decided in the way that the UN often makes decisions to not make a decision as to where the place for the summit would be because there were two competing countries. Switzerland and Geneva wanted to host it, and Tunisia, Tunis, the capital, also wanted to host it. So they decided to have one summit, two phases. The first phase was held in Geneva, and as you can imagine, when the UN tries to work on these things, they decided that rather than talk about the focus that was supposed to be, which is development and use of technologies, they would focus on a lot of other things, such as human rights-related issues and the like. And many countries, such as Russia, China, Saudi Arabia, and others, Iran, were very, very active in the preparations. And what they really wanted to do, more than anything else, was to change the relationship between the U.S. government and ICANN. And as everyone probably listening to this podcast knows, ICANN is the organization 
based in California that was created in essence by the U.S. government back in the 1990s to handle internet naming and addressing related issues. And it is one of the multi-stakeholder organizations that has not been part of a government, although the U.S. had a very significant role both in its creation and then for many years in ensuring that it was doing the right thing the right way. Virtually all countries wanted to take away the U.S. unique position with regard to ICAM, and there was a lot of fighting done in the preparatory work up to the summit in 2003 in Geneva. And again, in classic UN fashion, the decision was made to punt that to the second phase of the summit, which was in 2009 in Tunis. And in the interim, in that two, about two-year interim, they asked the UN Secretary General to put together a working group that would focus on what the term internet governance meant and basically what should happen, including whether or not the U.S., should continue to play its unique role with regard to ICANN. As we got closer to that second phase of the summit, the U.S. government, of which I had the honor of leading the preparatory work and then actually had the honor of leading both the U.S. delegation, co-leading the U.S. delegation to both phases of the summit since President Bush was otherwise engaged at the time, we issued a, a set of four principles. And those four principles basically said that we were going to, among other things, preserve the security and stability of the Internet's domain name and addressing system, the DNS, which took a lot of countries by surprise because they thought they were going to have a, a way of playing in that game. And we said no. And we sort of, a la Nancy Reagan back during the Reagan administration, we just said, just said no and took it that way. And at the same time, though, we said the internet issues are so important that we are willing to talk with virtually anyone, virtually anywheres about these issues. So we come to Tunis for the second phase, and there is no decision. It's a game of chicken over the ICANN-related issues. And finally, there was very much behind the scenes in negotiations between us and the European Union, which at the time, the UK was in the chair for their policy organization, their policy coordination. We decided that since we were going to say no to everything that was substantive, that we would create a space called the Internet Governance Forum, that we could have discussions along the lines that the U.S. had set forth back about a year or so earlier. In that, what we did is ensured, however, that this would not be a perpetual World Summit on the Information Society that heads this date or anything else that might be substantive. So we were very careful to put the word no repeatedly in the document that created the Internet Governance Forum so they would have no decision-making, no recommendations, no really anything of substance other than to be a forum for vigorous discussion amongst all players, not just governments, but also academia, the private sector, civil society, and the like. That was what created, ultimately, the IGF. Thanks. That's great background because those of us who work a lot in ICANN understand the multi-stakeholder process, but bringing the multi-stakeholder process into the UN is quite a feat. So major kudos to you. How did you get the rest of the UN participants to recognize the importance of the multi-stakeholder process? Was that a real push? I'm not sure we've actually ever been able to do that completely. <laughs> you know, For us, for the US and for many other countries, particularly in the West and particularly in Europe and the like, it's almost hard to explain multi-stakeholders because it's such a part of our DNA. 
you know, even when Congress, our government, makes a law, you know, they held hearings, they have witnesses often from the private sector and civil society come talk to them. They listen, at least they're supposed to and generally do listen to people. And so the idea of having multiple players with diverse background is is very much a part of our our world. Other countries, of course, it's a complete anathema, and it still is. Sometimes they give some lip service to it. I will give the UN a lot of credit. They have certainly moved in the right direction now for a number of years. And the roadmap that the Secretary General just issued with regard to these issues just a week or two ago is an illustration of, I think, some sincere appreciation for the importance of the multi-stakeholder process. But again, ultimately, the UN is a multilateral, not a multi-stakeholder organization. And so governments still uh, run the, the process. Yeah, with the standards bodies, there's a new, another attempt at this with a new IP system to go back to a centralized way of running communication. So it just makes the IGF process, I think, even more important. And I think it's great that we continue to have a lot of sustainability and people in the industry that, are, that appreciate the importance of the multi-stakeholder process. So I can't stress that enough. Related to that, I think one of the things that's really critically important is, you know, is showing up. Showing up at these meetings is not a, an inexpensive proposition for any of the players. This has always been a concern for the U.S. because we want to make sure that the developing world is well represented in these things because they have an important voice. But we also we all recognize that that can be very difficult. That's true in the U.S. as well. It's important to have a diversity of voices at all of these meetings. I recognize, I think we all recognize that it's often easier said than done. But again, having a large, diverse set of players with their own independent views is something extraordinarily important to having a successful multi-stakeholder process. Convincing people that they need to be spending money to have no decision is a perpetual challenge with this. And I congratulate everybody who's been able to continue the dialogue because it's so important, yet it's hard to put money towards it some days. I want to introduce our other guest today, Dustin Luke, who is the co-chair of the IGF USA, and just talk a little bit about how we went from this international body to bringing in the, the regional elements. So there's an international IGF every year, and then we have an IGF USA every year. Dustin, can you just kind of elaborate on that for me? Yeah, thanks, Shane. So one of the great outcomes of the IGF has been the independent establishment of different national and regional initiatives that began to pop up shortly after the IGF was established. Each of these operates in an autonomous way, but there is some coordination that's handled at the global IGF secretariat level to align the work and provide recognition in a way to the different national and regional IGFs. For example, you can pop up the IGF USA and talk about the benefits of organic produce for maternal health and call it the IGF USA and have it be recognized. You could call it the IGF USA, but there's a real baseline set of requirements that each IGF needs to meet in order to, to have that recognition and to participate with the other national and regional IGFs across the world. And I think at this point, 
there are 131 different national and regional IGFs. I didn't get the latest on the two that will be added tomorrow morning, but I texted the Secretariat just to double check the number. And it's up to 131 with two coming. So they're they're still popping up seemingly every year. That's amazing. I remember being in Hyderabad several years ago and when Africa was actually doing them as East and West Africa because they were looking at different connectivity issues they were having, doing a collaborative effort. And it showed that we didn't start with the IGF until about 2010, kind of guessing. But it was interesting to see how we needed to realize that because a lot of things started here in the United States, we needed to have a participation, not only at the international level, but at the, the U.S. regional level. It's always been a really interesting dialogue. So we mentioned there's kind of a facility group that coordinates at the international level. Do they have themes? Do we have themes every year? Yeah. So quickly, the IGF USA actually started in 2009. So just a quick note, give us an extra year of credibility there. But yeah, so there are themes each year as we work with other national and regional IGFs. We try to align them with the themes of the global IGF, but we organize it in an independent process. The way that this works is at the beginning of each cycle, we'll come together with different national and regional IGFs and talk about the issues that are most important from our local perspective and identify something like five to seven topics that we will build a collaborative session for at the global IGF where NRIs, that's just the acronym for national and regional initiatives, will collectively discuss the issues that we've identified from our local perspectives and see how we can improve coordination globally, see where there's alignment, where there's not alignment, and just learn from each other. This year, those topics include things like the future of work and what that looks like in the digital age, the role of data for sustainability, the technical aspects of content regulation, the digital economy and what cross-border regulations mean for digital sovereignty, cybersecurity policies and standards, access and digital inclusion, as well as just digital rights and the impact of the internet on democracy, generally speaking. Now, each different IGF initiative won't participate in all of these. We'll pick two or three that are the most relevant for us. This year, the IGF USA has stepped up to contribute to the discussion around the technical aspects of content regulation and access and digital inclusion. Really interesting. One thing that's going to be interesting this year being virtual is that last year we were really excited because we had such strong presence in the IGF that was held in Berlin. We actually had Angela Merkel show up and speak to the group and really recognize the importance of the internet and its, its progress. So do you think that we're going to be able to continue to keep people's interest with this as a virtual conference for this year, hopefully maybe future years? Yeah, I, I think so. I think this in a way, goes back to what David was mentioning earlier about the costs associated with participating. And of course, there's always a virtual option. But for anybody who has participated in a physical meeting by following the live stream or joining a Zoom session, 
you know that it's it's not the same thing. And so by having the entire meeting virtual, it's an opportunity to experiment with how this shifts the dynamics because the playing field has been leveled in a way for those that would have been participating remotely in any event due to whatever constraints they had. And so I think there's an opportunity to engage a much broader scope of participants. And even at the high profile level, there may be some people who really like getting up on a stage physically, and that's part of the draw for them. But it's also less of an ask to have somebody dial in from their living room and speak for an hour as opposed to fly halfway across the world. David, have you talked to anybody about what's going to go on with this year? Is it, I, I don't know if they've officially told us we're not going to, to Catawas. I think or maybe they have. And we're going to go again. We're going next year since we're not going this year. We're going to continue to get a strong participation internationally. I would expect that we will. But I think one of the things that all of us are recognizing very, very clearly are the limits on these virtual meetings. They're good placeholders. And as Sessin indicated, you know, they're particularly good in the sense of trying to level set and to give everybody the same set of experiences. But in terms of really making progress on various complicated and sensitive issues, I think all of our experience is that the real value of those meetings is less likely to come from the panel discussions and even the keynote speeches. And it's in the hallway conversations. It's in the informal types of give and takes where you can really explore with people in more depth where the overlaps in terms of interests are and some of the more creative paths forward on particularly on the more sensitive and complicated issues. And that's virtually impossible with today's technology, at least, to do in an effective and efficient manner. In-person still matters. I completely agree with you. And I, I, my previous podcast, we were talking to Ambassador Grace Coe about the challenge in you know, Patricia Paoletta. You have a lot of sidebar hallway conversations where you get things done. Plus, you are able to talk to people that you wouldn't have, a, you wouldn't regularly pick up the phone and have a conversation with them. But being that in person is is vitally important. So it's going to be a really interesting experience for all of us to see how this goes. The Eurodig, which is Europe's version of their IGF, was a couple of weeks ago, and I participated as a moderator in one of the panels. We had an interesting challenge where Vint Surf was one of our guests and he got into the virtual wrong room <laughs> and somebody had to go virtually get him out. But the problem was there was somebody he really wanted to talk to in the other room. So there was kind of, it was one of those things we weren't expecting to have that dynamic and we had to send a staffer to politely go pull him out, even though he was sitting in Virginia to get into the correct room. So still interesting things go on even when you think you've got it all planned out. Well, if someone's listening to this and somehow has not been engaged in this fascinating world and would like to participate, how do you get engaged in this? Well, I think a little bit depends on which this you were talking about. In the Internet Governance Forum, there's really, on the global side, and it's true nationally as well, and Dustin can speak to that, but on the global, there are really no limits. It is open to everyone. There is no accreditation process. You have to show up either in person or virtually, depending upon the situation. In fact, in the very, very first one of the the IGFs globally, which was held in Athens, Greece, about a year after the World Summit on the Information Society took place, there was a bit of a kerfuffle about that. The Chinese actually were very upset about some NGOs that were coming in from Taiwan 
And as you know, the issue of Taiwan and the United Nations is a very sensitive one. The Chinese actually decided not to press the issue. It was one of the issues about it being a UN meeting itself. And so those NGOs were were allowed to participate, which also meant they didn't have a platform to complain, which is what the Chinese were really more worried about at the time. But ever since then, which was only a couple hundred people showed up at that one, you know, it's really grown. And I think it's very easy for anyone with a general interest here to find a set of topics that they are interested in. And I would also underscore, since diversity is an incredibly important part of all of our discussions these days, that the organizers of the various workshops and sessions at the global IGF are always looking for new voices. And so raising your hand, either in person or virtually, to the organizers and volunteering to participate is open for even the newest people, as long as I think you're bringing good faith and a new perspective to the discussions. Dustin, what's the best way to become engaged in IGF USA's program planning? So we have an open steering committee that anybody can join. It operates year round and works to keep everything with the IGF USA moving forward. This committee leads the planning for the annual event as well as participating in the international IGF. If you want to get involved, we have a listserv that you can join by going to our website, which is igfusa.us. Or your listeners are always welcome to reach out to me directly and I can get them plugged into the process. And just make sure that you, you know, stay tuned for the open call for topics that we send out every year. And that's a good place to start. And if you just want to enjoy the end product and attend the event, you can register at igfusa.us. As someone who's been involved for many years, you know, it's fun to do the entire year cycle. I, I always love when we actually do the poll, see what people care about. But I know you're about ready to have your event. So what's on deck for the virtual event on July 22nd and 23rd? So this year, we restructured it into a two-day conference in order to enable more participation in this new structure. We won't have any concurrent panels. And instead, each session will have a dedicated time slot, which will allow for more audience participation in each topic and discussion. You can take a look at our full agenda on our website, which again is igfusa.us. But just really quickly to run through what we have in store. On day one, we will kick off by covering how the internet and technology have been used during the COVID crisis, followed by a great discussion on 5G and IoT that will begin with a fireside chat with FCC Chairman Ajit Pai and DHS Director Chris Krebs, moderated by yours truly, Shane Tews. <laughs> and we'll follow up with a session on encryption and lawful access, followed by the closing session for day one, which will focus on the challenges around content moderation and platform liability. To kick off day two, we'll start the discussion with a panel on privacy in the age of COVID-19 and how that relates to healthcare. Then we will look at what artificial intelligence, machine learning, and big data mean for the internet. Then we'll take a look at the security side of things and the cyber attacks that a lot of the users don't see or maybe don't understand. And then we'll look at the digital divide and what the impact of COVID-19 has been on learners and educators. 
And finally, we'll close out the conference with a focus on what all of this means for internet governance and where do we go from here. Wow. It sounds like you've really got a great agenda. And again, that will be on the website at igfusa.us, along with the panel participants and how people can get engaged. So Dustin, I think you've got a really vibrant discussion planned and you'll have a good couple of days. Yeah, thanks. And look forward to seeing everybody there. Fantastic. All right. Well, thank you guys very much for being guests on today's show. I hope that a lot of people will take the time to realize that this is an vital part of how the internet runs internationally and think about being part of the dialogue. Well, thank you very much for having us. We really appreciate it and hope to see, using that term loosely, everyone in July. (laughs) Great. Thanks, David. Thanks, Dustin. Thanks, Shane. Thanks, David.